Um, well, what's up? For those of you who don't know me, I'm Ryan. I'm the youth and college pastor. Um, Lauren, can we get the lights up right here in the back? Lauren's working at uh, solo tonight, so she's doing a great job. Other way. There we go. I didn't say she's doing an awesome job. She's doing a great job. Um, and then, are we recording? You all good? Just so you guys know, there's pins in the corner of the sound booth right there in a the little blue bin. They're not magic. They're just if you want to write something down or if you remember something. Um, one of the things that we've kind of affectionately said, this is our second week of PV in college of the semester, and we've kind of said that we are starting with maybe the worst idea for a back-to-school series, um, but we're talking about suffering, um, and our series is called Where is God When It's Dark? But one of the things I want to talk to you first is uh, one of the things we like to do is um, come up with a book every week that, that one of us on, on staff has read and that has helped us with that particular topic. Last week, uh, it was a book called A Grief Observed um, by C.S. Lewis. And this week, yeah, Rebecca's got it. And this week, uh, we're, we're talking a book. The book is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, uh, a real chipper pick-me-up by Tim Keller. Um, it is one of the best books on suffering I've ever read. Tim Keller just has such a good way of, of taking big concepts and explaining them in ways that are easy to understand and I highly recommend it. I just looked it up, actually. It's uh, $10 on Amazon, so not too bad, not too pricey. Um, super, super helpful. So again, just kind of want to recommend that, okay? Can you turn me down just a little bit, Lauren? I feel like I'm going to blast everybody. Um, so moving on from that, one of the things, like we said, we're in this series called Where is God When It's Dark? Where is God in pain and suffering? Christian, atheist, Buddhist, in between, whatever that means, we're all going to suffer, and that's the what's unfortunately that's one of the things that unites us the most. And so that's what we want to talk through tonight: is where is God when it's dark? Where is God when we're going through things that maybe we don't understand? And, and we talked last week about how um, we're in the book of Job. So I don't know if you want to turn there or slip there, and the Bible will actually be up um, while we're looking. Um, one of the things we talked about was you know people who don't even know squat about the Bible, right? Theological term there. Uh, they know who, thanks Rebecca, they know who <laughs> Jesus is, they know the prodigal son, and they know Job, right? Those are the ones that's like, oh yeah, I know who this is. And you know, for those of you who maybe need a little refresher, that's okay. That's why I'm here. Job is this God-fearing, God-worshipping man who had it all right and he had a great life, and then all these terrible things happened to him before we even get out of chapter 1. And then it gets worse, if you can even say that, in chapter 2. Um, and, you know, people, might, people know who Job is, and you might even say after, like, a rough week, like, oh, I feel like Job, you know, because your car broke down, because that's the same thing. Um, but very rarely do we actually know the story of Job, right? We don't know the story of what actually happened. We just know he went through rough stuff. We don't really know what that story is and what that story looks like. Um, so for this week and last week, we've been talking about Job and looking at how his handling of suffering can help us in ours. Does that make sense? How his handling of suffering can help us in ours. And, you know, it's not really a cure to suffering. Like, this is going to fix it. I don't know how to do that. If you figure it out, you need, to, you need to call me real soon and we can talk about it. But we, we talked about how one of the things that's so great about the book of Job is we don't just need good theology in suffering. You do need that, but you don't just need that. You don't just need a good phrase, you know, ladies that you write on the bathroom mirror or whatever. You don't just need that to help you through it. We need our hearts strengthened, 
right? We need someone with us. And we used the example of the, uh, the biblical character of Bing Bong from Inside Out last week. And how, you know how in the scene in Inside Out where, please don't start weeping, uh, where Bing Bong is like sitting on the cliff and he's, and he's really depressed and upset and joy is just pounding away trying to get him better, trying to fix it, and she can't. So she gets frustrated and leaves and then empathy or sadness comes and sits by him and says, man, yeah, I know, yeah, that's rough, I hear you, that's awful. And they talk about their sadness together, and that's what actually ends up helping him, right? Which just shows that Pixar 1 is just blowing it out of the water. But 2, it's just such a good example of we need somebody with us in suffering, and, and more oftentimes than not, that's just as good a help, if not more, than a good lesson or a good thing to remember. Does that make sense? So I hope to give you both. That's my goal, is to give you both of those things. Some things to remember and someone to sit with you in suffering. Um, last week we looked at Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, just to kind of set the scene. Um, and just so if maybe you remember this, um, Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and we won't read it again, but we'll, um, Lauren, we're going to pick it up in one, one uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 6 in just a second here, but Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 talks about how Job essentially had the perfect family. Like he had the perfect life. One commentary says that Job 1, 1 through 5 is kind of almost like a Disney movie. Like everything is awesome. Like Job is kind of like an old 50s TV show. Like Mrs. Job, whatever, I mean, no disrespect. Mrs. Job is like, you know, vacuuming the drapes with her pearls in or whatever. And like the family eats at each other's house every day of the week, which is literally what happens. And they're, you know, they probably like sing before they eat like eggs, bacon, and toast. Um, little Parks and Rec. But there's this, it's this perfect, like, <laughs> it's this perfect family, this amazing thing. Um, Job is one of the wealthiest men in the East, which is what we learned, which means he was unbelievably wealthy for Camel Garage, right? And again, it's like, it's just this perfect life. Things are so, I promise we're going to get deeper in a second, by the way, because I know some of you are like, what is he talking about? Um, But it is. Job's life is just like this Disney movie. Um, And then Job suffers, and it's awful. And I think, you know, why would they include the good stuff if Job is, Job is to teach us how to suffer. That's the point of the book of Job. It's in the middle of the wisdom literature. He's teaching us how to suffer. Why would you put the good stuff in? Just to like to twist the knife? Why are you doing this? But I think it's because God knows that this is what life is like. We have these seasons. We do. Where life is awesome. Where things are great. Um, And then we have seasons where we suffer. Where the page turns and it hits the fan and we don't know what to do and this is what happens in Job God is showing us both sides because our life is both sides in this broken world and the lessons we can learn are so so helpful so um, if you look in the book of Job the first two chapters are this back and forth between what's happening in heaven while Job is suffering on earth it's like this meanwhile you know what I mean it's like this real time This is what's going on in heaven while Job is suffering on earth. And then starting in chapter 3, it stays on earth for the final 39 chapters, right? It stays on earth. We don't get to glimpse into heaven again. But it's so important what we see right at the beginning. So think about that. The author stops the flashing back and forth, which means that all we needed to know, all you needed to see about what's happening in heaven is in the first two chapters, okay? And then the author says, we've given you everything you need about what's going on in heaven, during your suffering. So we're going to pick it up in verse 6, and we're going to take it piece by piece, um, and we'll talk about it. So 
Job 1, 1 through 5, is Job doing his thing? Everything's great. Then we come to verse 6, so we go into the realm of the Lord. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along with them. So, it's this idea in verse 6. So, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening in your suffering. This scene is taking place in heaven, but specifically in the throne room of God. This is taking place in the throne room of God, and we know this because the angels are coming to, in my version it says, to present themselves before the Lord. I don't know what your version says, but this, this phrase, to present themselves, it means to give account to a superior. If you were called to the principal's office, you would present yourself. You would present yourself before your drill sergeant. You would present yourself before your chief of staff or before your boss. It's this idea of presenting yourself to a superior, addressing a superior. These sons of God, these angels are reporting to him. We see these, if you're taking notes, you may want to write down Psalm 82 and Psalm 89. That's where we see them again. Um, commentators, I thought this was cool, they call them the divine council or they call them God's heavenly cabinet. Like the president has his cabinet. Not so much for God of advisors, but these people that carry out his will. God is clearly in position of authority when Job's suffering begins. And here's why this is important, because Job's about to go through the ringer, right? And it's so important to see that the book of Job, which has so much suffering, is not some movie where God has been thrown out of his kingdom and Satan rules it, and so God has to get the band back together to take on Satan. God is in total control on his throne when this happens to Job. Okay, look at me. What a difference this would make. What a comfort this would be for us if during our suffering, right, when it hits the fan, when you get the letter, when you get the phone call, when you get the text message, when you go to work and it's not like you thought, what a comfort it would be if during that suffering, the Holy Spirit would remind us that God is on His throne. Does that make sense? What does it matter though? Who cares? What does it matter that he's on his throne? Because it means that he's still in perfect control. Your suffering has not bested him. He's not up there, well, Gabriel, what, what do you think? Like he's not up there trying to figure out the play. He's in perfect control. He sees it clearly in the middle of your suffering. He's in perfect control in your pain. During your pain, He is ordering and commanding the universe. He saw your suffering, whatever it is, He saw your suffering coming from miles away. And it, now hear this, He saw your suffering come to you from miles away and it only got to you after He grabbed it and ordered it for His purposes. Then he let it go. If he's not on his throne, he can't do that. Your anxiety has overwhelmed him. Your drama has overwhelmed him. Your pain has overwhelmed him. But if he's on his throne, he sees this coming and he can catch it, make it do his will, and then allow it to enter your life. What if every suffering and pain in your life has first hit God before it hit you? It can only get to you after it goes through God. 
This is a huge thing to remember. And now, pretend your pain is a knife, right? We have a local knife worker with us, so this will really hit home, I think. Um, if you start to tear up, it's tissues back there. Um, but think about this. This pain that cuts you like a knife, right? A knife can be used to inflict pain, but it can also be used to perform surgery. Do you follow that? In God's hands, if He didn't have control of this, this knife would be used to cut down. But in God's hands, this knife that the devil meant, or that the world, or that your own heart meant to cause pain, God takes it, puts it in His hands, and uses it to cut, to perform surgery to help you. You remember when Joseph is thrown into Egypt, and at the very end, Genesis 50, 20, you know it. Joseph says to his brothers, when you sold me to slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Same word, same knife, sold into slavery. But instead of it being used to cut Joseph to pieces, God used it to perform surgery on his heart. And the only way God can do that is if God's on his throne the entire time. Charles Spurgeon, I promise there's not going to be a quiz. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, died at 57 years old. But before he died, he died of, or excuse me, he suffered from debilitating gout, which is severe arthritis, severe joint pain. Public ridicule, his peers couldn't stand him. Recurring depression, maybe some of you, listen, recurring depression. Charles Spurgeon had it. Don't think that there's something wrong with you. Do you feel me on that one? If Spurgeon goes through this, if Spurgeon walks with a limp, it's okay if you do too. Family illness and tragedy. Listen to what he wrote. Now listen, this was all stuff that Spurgeon suffered. Listen to what he wrote in his journal about suffering, his suffering. It brings me great comfort in suffering to know that my painful cup was filled by God's loving hand. It brings me comfort in suffering to know that my cup of suffering was not measured out by the devil. God did it. God measured out my pain of suffering. He goes on, because this means it was measured with care by Him instead of by hatred with Satan. So this pain, this medicine that you've got, we've got to go through this. We've got to go through this. This pain that you're going to go through was measured out by God lovingly. This is just enough to be good, to do my work. It's not too much. It's, if it's not enough, it's not going to do anything. If it's too much, it'll destroy her. Just enough to where this will work. That's how Spurgeon saw pain. That's how the Bible sees pain. As God, as the good doctor in his office, working for your good. Cutting for your good. God never creates evil towards people. Okay, He never creates evil towards people. But everything from, and this is, you know, I haven't gone through this. My granddad did, but I don't know a lot about this one. But that doesn't mean it's not true, because this says it. Everything from cancer to criticism. God is on His throne commanding it all. No evil can act outside of His will. There is no cancer that God says, ah, oh, did, not, did not plan on this. There is no, 
Matt Chandler says, God doesn't drive an ambulance. An ambulance gets there after to figure it out, right? God doesn't do that. He's not up there, oh, dude, Zane, I am so sorry, I forgot. Like, God's not going to, my bad. Like, that's not God. He sees it all the way through from beginning to end. Here we go. The worst thing that will ever happen to you in your life will happen to you while the God who loves you is sitting on His throne watching and working in every second of it. The worst thing that will ever happen to you in your life will happen while God who loves you is sitting on His throne watching and working in every second of it. We'll see this later, but in, in, in Job 1.1 it says that Job was an upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. In verse 8, God describes Job you may want to draw a line from verse 1 to verse 8 because God describes Job as upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. He quotes it word for word. Do you know why? Because he knows Job. He knows his servant. He knows his children. Suffering doesn't mean he's turned his back. He knows Job so well. And then we see in verse 8, it's kind of... I don't think it's meant to be funny, but I think we need some levity. But it's, it's like, you know, in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And, and Satan also came among them. So it's like, and Satan, who invited? You know what I mean? Um, so Satan is there also, right? Uh, just so you know, you actually know a little more Hebrew than you thought you did. Satan is a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word for adversary. That's why we call him that. So you, there you go, a little vocab. for That one's free. Um, he's also called the accuser. He is against God. Now, here's why this is important. Satan's name is the adversary. In Hebrew, whatever your description is, that defines you. Like in the book of Esther, she's beautiful, and her beauty defines her throughout the whole book. It gets her through. It gets her into Xerxes' court. It gets her through the whole thing. It defines her. Satan's name is the adversary. So him being adversarial to God, he's God's enemy. This defines his whole identity. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? And Satan answered, and Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about the earth and walking on it. Satan, this being whose sole job is to try to destroy God, the adversary, doesn't even speak until God addresses him directly. Now his job is to take on God. If anyone's going to come in their guns blazing, it's Satan. And Satan doesn't even open his mouth until God addresses him directly. Do you know why? Because he can't. You know, and not that this has ever happened to any of you, but you know like when you're younger, and maybe this is later earlier in the week, I'm not trying to like hit personal, but like when your parents are so mad at you, but you got to eat dinner together, and it's like the worst bowl of mashed potatoes like in your life, but you just, you just keep your mouth closed and you just keep eating your mashed potatoes and don't say a word, that really is Satan in God's presence. He's not going to speak. He's not going to look at him. He will not speak until he is spoken to. 
He has no power with God. Now look at verses 11 and 12. God said, or excuse me, Satan says in verse 11, put, but put forth your hand now and touch all that Job has and Job will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that Job has is in your power. Only do not put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God, did you catch this? God allows Satan to attack Job. All that he has is in your power. Only there's conditions. Only to a certain point. Do not lay your hand on him. And Satan does not go past this point ever in the book of Job. In the next chapter, we'll see God will say, You can lay your hands on Job, but do not take his life. And Job, in all his misery and all his pains, never dies in the book of Job. Because God said, He doesn't die. He's mine. Notice at the end of verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. He's given him, God has given him the adversary rules. And as soon as God is done addressing Satan, he leaves. He gets no input. He has no say. He doesn't even get to talk about something else. Uh, I love sports way too much. That's my issue. Like, I'll be watching NBA, and Kristen, my wife, will be like, you need to chill. Like, you need to, this is not healthy what you're doing, okay? Um, I, the worst, though, is game seven, right? Now, for those of you who like sports, is not your thing. It's totally fine. Um, it's probably a good thing, honestly. But game seven is this idea where in the playoffs, it's the first team to win four games. Best out of seven. If you lose game seven, you go home. There is no other chance. The issue is... We in church, we in the world, we think that it's game seven in the universe. It's God versus Satan. And, who, and it's, it's three to three, and whoever loses has to go home. It's neck in neck. You've got to understand this when you go through suffering. It's game seven. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is in total control the entire time. He would win all seven of the games. He is on his throne. Satan, if you think about it, is on a leash. And he can, and, and he can only ever operate with whatever slack God gives in the rope. You can go to Job, but only this far. You can touch him, but you can't take his life. You see how God's the one laying this out, measuring this out? God knows Job. He knows. He is on his throne. He is watching over Job. He is watching over your cancer. He is watching over your breakup. He is watching over your family drama. He is watching over your anxiety. He's watching over the chemical imbalances in your brain. He's measured these out. He sees them. He can fix them. Or he can allow them to work for his good. He sees the weirdness in your marriage that maybe you can't, can't tell her about this, can't tell him about this because he'll just get mad, so i got to navigate. He sees all of it. You know, 
like if you've ever been through a breakup or, or those maybe you're struggling and it's, I know some of you are like, I haven't been through a breakup, Brian. Thanks for bringing that up. And I get it. But like maybe some of you it's anxiety or it's a, a, a sadness about something. You know how like you could be like folding laundry and that stab of pain just from out of nowhere. You know what I'm talking about? Like from breakups or anxiety or sad, just out of, you're watching whatever, Jeopardy. And like, and out of nowhere this, you just get hit with it. God saw that coming and measured it out in a perfect amount before he let it hit you. And I know maybe for some of you, this, it's like, you know, back to school. God measures your pain. Like, why are we talking about this? But I think for some of us in suffering, our first hit is to wonder, where exactly is God in all this? Where is he in my singleness? Where is he in this broken relationship that I thought was going to be awesome? Where is he when I can't find a job? Where is he when I can't understand these things? Look at me. He's on his throne. Go back to the book of Job. Don't go to Instagram or Facebook and compare yourself and do all these awful things. Go to the Bible. He's on his, if he's on his throne before Job suffered, he's on his throne before your bronchitis. Does that make sense? He's on his throne before your anxiety. He's there. And I know, and I, like, here's part of the reason I'm trying to keep this a little, a little light or whatever, that I hit too close to home there, Chris. Um, but I think sometimes we talk about suffering and then everybody leaves and we're just crying. And it's like, bro, I just told you. He's on, he's on his throne. He's in total control. He's measuring this out. Look at it like this. Those of you who have been through a job interview before and you understand how awful it is, it's like, just tell me if I'm going to get paid enough or not and then we can both leave if I, if I think it's enough. Have you ever thought about it like this? God is on his throne. God puts Satan. God puts your cancer. God puts your breakup. God puts your anxiety. God puts your depression in a room before it ever gets to you. And he makes it sit in that uncomfortable chair next to the vending machine. And he sits across from your pain. And God says, give me your file. You can't do this to her. You can't do this to him. You can't touch this part. You can't do this. And this is when you're supposed to be over. And your cancer and your anxiety and your pain says, yes, sir, and leaves the office. And then it gets to you. That's awesome. That's huge when you think about this. And your pain can say nothing to God but, yes, sir. And now, this knife that cuts through you is being used to surgically open your heart where the Lord can do a mighty work. And I think for some of you, it's this idea. Maybe some of you know people who have been taken by a disease. Well, where was God in His office with that? Maybe, and, and, and it could happen to me. I don't know. Maybe for some of it, it's, it's the, the cancer or the car wreck sits in God's office and God says, this is what you're going to do. You can't touch his family like this. You can't touch her family like this. And you're done. when you bring, Instead of you being a disease of death and anger, you're going to be a disease that actually brings her home to me. Think about that. This cancer, this, this product of the fall, this car wreck, this whatever, instead of being this thing that's meant to destroy everything, God says, I'm going to use you as the... You're the you are... He's going to thank you for this when he gets to me. 
It's amazing. And he lets none of this go before it was designed by him. Now, with God on his throne, with God in perfect control, I I would be remiss if I didn't remind you the pain will still happen. It's still going to hurt. It will. It just is. It's gonna, I don't want to give you a good sermon and get out there and be somebody and you think that nothing's ever going to happen because it's going to happen. Look at 13 through 19. 13 through 19 of Job chapter 1. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. That's not a hit on alcohol, by the way. Please don't do that. Um, we'll do, we need to talk about alcohol in here and we will. Um, now you're paying attention. Unbelievable. 14, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside him, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They slew your servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 16, while this one was still speaking, another one came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 17, while he was still speaking, so this is staccato, boom, 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 machine gun. Another also came in and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made... And made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 18. While he was speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And the young people died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. The pain still comes through. Do you remember in verse 8 how God addresses Job? He looks at Satan and he says, My servant Job. The suffering will come. And don't, one, don't put yourself in a hole because am I being too sinful? Is that why God's attacking me with this? He might be. I ran over somebody with my car and I feel guilty. Is, it, is that God? Yeah, yeah, it is. But at the same time, don't get in this double zone where it's like, well, I must be disobeying. That's why he's given this disease to the, that. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Now you're responsible. You can't do it. Preacher told you. If Job's going to suffer, and he's the most obedient person maybe ever, other than Christ, and also, don't get on your high horse. But I obeyed you. How could you do this to me? I went to small group. I help out with PV in college. Don't obey God to to load your chips up. Obey God because He's God. That's the older brother's problem in the prodigal son, right? I did everything you said. Remember Job. Don't treat God, don't treat good deeds as insulation with God. Well, God and I are cool. You and God are cool because God sent Jesus. And He swapped places with you. That's why you're cool with God. Not because of your Awana medals. And also, understand that it's okay to worship God and be sad at the same time. Look at at what this says in 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. Job arose, so stood up. He tore his robe. Robe is a sign of wealth. He's lost all his wealth. It's this sign of that part of my life is over. Shaved his head, which is a sign of mourning for the dead. And then he falls, and this W word blows our minds. 
He falls to his face and he worships. What was Satan's reasoning for going after Job? Why did Satan go for Job? Look at 10 and 11. Have you not made protection around Job and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and you've given him possessions and you've increased his land. Verse 11, but put forth your hand and destroy all that he has and Job will curse you to your face. Satan's telling telling God, if you take his stuff, he'll stop worshiping you. He'll curse you to your, to your face. Imagine the horror on Satan's face and the joy in God's heart when Job says, verse 21, Job fell and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, and that's where I'm supposed to leave it, right? When you lose everything in your life, just be like Job. No problem, right? All you have to do is stop Michael Jordan, and you guys can win the basketball game. He's the best player. What am I supposed to do with that? All you have to do is be like Job. Follow this. Job, here's how that happens in your soul. He loses all his kids. He loses all his stuff. And he says, well, I didn't come into this world with anything. I'm not going to leave with anything. The Lord gave those things to me. The Lord took them away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My kids don't matter. My house didn't matter. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is what he's saying, and that is so not what he's saying. And to understand both of those together is what will satisfy you in suffering. Here's what this means. Because so many times it's like, It means nothing. Remember, Abraham killed Isaac or tried to kill him. You know, just count it as nothing. Count it as nothing. That's not what this means. It's not that Job didn't care about his kids. That's not what this teaches. You know, just worship God and forget about your stuff and all your family. It's not about treating your things and your family like they don't matter. James 1.17 tells us every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights. Everything good is from God. And did you catch in verse 19, Job doesn't become devastated. Job doesn't fall to the ground until after he hears about his family. He, can, he, he, he holds it through the stuff, but then when the people closest to him fall, that's when Job falls. Listen, he cared about his family. Job loved his family. So how does he worship when they're taken away? That's what we learned last week. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 of Job chapter 1. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering a burnt offering to the Lord for every number of his children. And Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned against God and cursed them in their hearts. Thus Job offered these sacrifices continually. Every week. This, this is so huge because you can't just go out there and be like Job. It's just not going to happen. But this is what you can do. Every week, Job goes and he worships God. Every week, Job goes and sees that God is holy, that God is good, that God can't be around sin. You see, he's, I'm going to offer sacrifice for my, the sins of my kids because I know you don't like that. 
But if I offer this sacrifice, you can be with me. Through the sacrifice, you can be with me. Job sees in his own way the gospel. Every week, he worships God. Every week. Tim Keller says, one of the hardest things in ministry is having a good marriage. Think about that. One of the hardest things in ministry is having a good marriage because he says it can make you worship the good things in your life and forget about your ministry. You can worship your wife instead of God. And he says, I love my wife. Listen to this. Think about Job losing his kids. Think about all the things precious to you. I love my wife so much, but I have to remember that one of these days, one of us is going to be looking at the other lying in a coffin. And if we've spent our whole lives worshiping each other, it'll kill the other. Do you see that? If you spend your life, and this is because college kids, y'all want to get married. I wanted to get married. You go to college, then you get married. That's part of the deal, right? If you spend your life worshiping your spouse or the idea of marriage, you're going to be useless to your spouse when the day of trouble comes. You're going to be useless to your boyfriend. You're going to be useless to your girlfriend when it hits the fan. Here we go. In order to love your spouse well, you have to love God more than your spouse. In order to love your spouse well, you have to love God more than your spouse. Because if you don't, you're going to worship them and you're going to crush them and you're going to end up hurting yourself. You know, like when, like ladies, maybe when you're growing up, or, or fellas, I guess this happens too, but like maybe a guy likes you, or you know friends, when you know guys who do this, like they like a girl, and they just bury her in like Facebook Messenger, or like on whatever you kids message on, like through text, they just bury her, right? That's worship. He sees her as his savior, so he's putting it all on her. It's the same with stuff. It's the same with family. To enjoy stuff properly, to love your family well, you have to love God more than those things. If you worship your family, you're going to run over every other relationship that's not family, because family first. Family has turned you into a tyrant. If you worship stuff, you won't really enjoy this stuff because it's just going to consume you. You won't own the stuff. The stuff will own you. And I'm not asking you to be like Job. I'm asking you, Job had nothing left except for what was in his heart. And the things that got put in his heart were put in there every week. And that's literally all he's got left. What's in your heart? What do you spend your days doing? Is every day filled with fantasizing about your significant other? Fantasizing about having a significant other? Is it spent waiting for the next paycheck so you can go do the next fun thing? Got to do the next fun thing. What's the next fun thing? Those things are good. Those things are okay. But if you fill your heart with them, Job ran to whatever he had left. And I think it's so interesting that the richest man who had the best family, all that's left in his heart is Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. My stuff, I didn't come into this world with my stuff. And the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. My family was a gift from God, and He gives and He takes. Job reminded his, himself daily, 
Not that his children didn't matter. Not that his relationships didn't matter. But instead, he looked at his kids playing in the yard. He looked at his acres of land. And instead of saying, look at what I've done, he said to himself, God has been so good to me. You see the difference in that? He's not saying my kids don't matter. And I'm not saying ignore your stuff, ignore your relationships, ignore your blessings. No, 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 no. See these blessings as windows through which you can see God. Every day, Job told himself, these are gifts from God who loves me. And now he goes and finds his daughter's body and he holds his daughter's body and he says, she was a wonderful gift from a God who loved me. You see how he's broken in that? And blessed be the name of the Lord. He's not ignoring his daughter. He loves his daughter. That's why he fell to the ground. All that's left in his heart is what he's filled it with. And he filled his heart with God loves me and he's worth worshiping. Um, to close is, is, is this story. You know, there's a, there's a really good band called Shane and Shane, right? And all the hipster Christians said amen. There's this, it's great. They're, they're awesome. They're awesome. They have this song called Though You Slay Me, which is from Job 13. Um, and Shane, I don't know which one, tells this story about where it came from. Um, Shane was on concert, on tour, and his mom called and said, hey, your dad's had a heart attack. It doesn't look good. So he goes to, um, he goes to the hospital, and he's with his mom and the family, and the dad passes away. The dad, he, he leaves from the heart attack. And the mom just comes unglued. You know what I'm talking about? And she's shaking, and she's weeping, and Shane says he's, he's holding her, Right? And he can hear. She's whispering. And he leans in and he says, he's the only one that heard it. And she's, she whispers, he gives, he takes, blessed be his name. He gives, he takes, blessed be his name. Oh, to, wor to worship like that. To worship like that. He, she feels it. She feels it, right? Oh, she loved this guy. He gave me a husband he takes, blessed be His name. You have to begin to understand as a Christian that He gives. He gives it. He gives you the job that you love. He gives you the spouse or the girlfriend that you love. He gives you the time, that sweet season of singleness where you can go to Dairy Queen and just hang. He gives you that season that you love. It was a gift from God. And I'm not trying to, but one day... I love my wife, but one day, he's going to take. And you have to begin to work into your heart. He gives, he takes, blessed be his name. You are good. You know the psalm, though my flesh and my heart may fail, you are my joy forever. Though everything around me may fail, you're my joy forever. You will not learn that. If you spend every day watching TV, get on social media, go work out, go to work, come home. Don't read your Bible. Don't go to church. Don't, you're, it's never, I'm not trying to get you here. I want you here, but I, whatever. you got to work this in. He gives, He takes, blessed be His name. 
It's not going to be there if you don't work this in. The sermon is like a like little Ron Swanson analogy. The sermon is like when you spread the seasoning on the meat. I've give, there it is. I've done the best I can. It's not that good. I'm sorry I went too long. I'm kind of boring. I'm weird. It's whatever. But you've got to go home now and work this in. Does that make sense? Do you follow, do you follow that? Work this into your soul. That's why the singing after is such a sweet time, which we're about to do. It gives you a minute to, to work this in. That's where Job's coming from. And that's what you're going to suffer. It's going to happen. It's going to happen 11 minutes from now. But the thing that will help is when you can begin to work it in, he gives, he takes. Blessed be his name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't get why you took this from me. I, th I thought it was going great. I tried to serve you. I tried, like Matt Chandler said, I did nothing but serve you, and you're going to give me this. You're give, you gave me health. Your health is a gift that he can take at any time. He, you gave me health. You're taking it. I don't understand why. I don't like it. But blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. And you just say it until you work it into your soul. That's why choruses repeat in songs. Not so you can doze, but so you can work it in. Blessed be your name. Let's pray and then the band is going to play.